Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and this week we take a look at the promise and problem of automation. I was struck by the topic while reading a recent McKinsey & Company article entitled The Future of Work in Japan, Accelerating Automation After COVID-19. Humans, I thought to myself, carry germs and disease. Well, robots, they don't. Here's the question. If increased productivity and return on investment initially spurred commercial investment in robotics, how might the coronavirus and prospects of other contagious disease further accelerate efforts to replace people with robots? In Japan, where a demographic decline in working-age citizens demands automation in order to fill the gap, COVID-19 has given the country and its industrialists further reason to invest in AI, robotics, and machine learning wherever possible. Elsewhere in the world, where COVID has left millions unemployed, there's rising concern that companies, when rehiring begins, will pass on human employees in deference to machines. Observing Japan to see how its robotic revolution takes hold and impacts people could serve as a bellwether for policymakers elsewhere. Governments are desperate to rekindle economic growth after COVID's devastating effects. This means encouraging corporate recovery while reducing unemployment. In certain sectors, however, primarily industrial, the two may prove mutually exclusive. To help us understand what's at stake, I contacted the author of the McKinsey article, Maya Hori. She's a partner in McKinsey's Tokyo office and advisor to both public agencies and private enterprise. We discussed Japan's unique set of circumstances, its declining workforce, poor productivity, and prospects for displacing human workers with machine-based alternatives. Maya, thank you so much for joining us from Tokyo today. Uh, We are going to have a conversation about the future of work and automation in Japan. Um, Thanks for joining us on Inside Asia. Thank you so much for having me here, Steve. Um, I wonder just to start things off, um, if you might explain for our listeners some of the current challenges now facing the Japanese labor market. Sure. Um, So as you might know, our population hit the peak in 2011, and it has been on a steady decline since then. But what's more uh, critical is the fact that the labor force is expected to shrink even more than our population. Um, As the the, the baby boomers will retire, and despite the increasing labor force participation by women, um, the government, uh, this is a, a statistics from the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare, um, they projected in 2019 that by 2040, um, that the late workforce could shrink uh, as much as 20% from what it is today. Um, and in addition to the general decline in the workforce, uh, the productivity stagnation has been a big issue in Japan. Um, it's been roughly about 60% of the, uh, the productivity in the U.S., and it's among the lowest uh, in the developed countries. Um, so with these two, labor force shortage is actually becoming a real issue in many of the sectors and industries. And then I hope to talk more about that. Sure. It's a little bit about the productivity. What's the problem sure. there as you understand it? So the productivity challenge, I think, is is in various fronts. I think one is, um, um, you know, there are many small, medium enterprises that are supporting the Japanese workforce today. Um, about there are 3.8 million SMEs uh, in Japan. It's about 98% of the employment. 
um, still, you know, there are big companies, um, but I think, you know, the, the, just like many countries, I think the larger proportion of the SMEs is still, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's uh, the number of companies, right, that, that, that represent by, uh, represented by SMEs, and it's about 70% of the uh, labor force is employed by SMEs. But I think that, that continues to be much lower in productivity. But even among the, the large uh, corporations, um, you know, you still see a lot of uh, manual-based or paper-based work uh, that's very different from, um, you know, what you might imagine from the, the automated factories and manufacturing sector in Japan. So I, I think it's been, it's been quite a challenge in terms of the productivity improvement. And is that just a cultural phenomenon, the fact that there's a desire or a preference for paper-based processes, back office particularly? Um, because on automation and man in, in manufacturing, uh, you have an impression of Japan being well ahead of the curve. So what's different when it comes to automation in an office setting? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the... Um um, you know, there's been slow adaptation of technologies in many of the Japanese corporate offices. I think partially because um, I think there is a, a you know a bit of a craftsmanship and uh, quality uh, to service and the customers, and then I think um, many um, companies have you know really thought about customer orientation or customer experience as uh, first and the foremost. Um, and then as a result, I have lagged perhaps behind on some of the adaptation of technologies and then automation in the office work. But at the same time, I think it's it's also, you know, there are some no-brainers that companies are not adapting. And that's you know, often surprising to me. Uh, for example, we still use fax machines. And you know, some of my international friends are often calling like, why do you still have fax numbers on your business cards and then what are you doing? But but the reality is we still um, use, you know, these handcodes, the stamps that are signs of approvals. Uh, and then that's very hard copy based. Um, I think during COVID, there was some push to, you know, become more um, digital, um, but still I think many companies are used to operating in the same kind of old manner. Um, I think the other piece um, that I think is a challenge is that um, in the corporate world, uh, there are still lack of understanding of the technologies and what it could do. Um, many of the Japanese um, you know, leaders and employees are staying within the same company for their still kind of for their entire career. Um, and those are often not the people who are super technology savvy, right? And then so the understanding of what could it do. Mm. It makes me think about to, the, to what degree do you believe that productivity challenges uh, are a factor based on the hierarchical order or the middlemen and all of the different mm. kind of operating or managing, managerial levels that are looking to hold on to their jobs for life? Is that a factor as well? I think so, although I think the situation is changing a bit um, because, as I said, um, you know, the, the labor force uh, is declining and then therefore um, there are not enough people uh, to go around for the, the jobs that's required, right? So like, you know, for example, retail or, you know, some of the logistics um, have been a huge um, challenge in terms of securing the, 
the, the number of workers that's needed. Um, and then I think, um, you know, you're right about the hierarchical nature of Japanese organizations, and some people might be holding on to their positions. Um, but, you know, at least in my clients, I see um, some changes happening in terms of, um, you know, people realizing unless they are performing and producing output, um, they may not longer, no long, you know, uh, they may not have the, the job security forever. Um, because um, I think many companies are starting to move more towards these job description-based um, uh, evaluation and then employment, and then not necessarily the kind of the old-fashioned, you know, you belong to a company forever, and the company will take care of you. Yeah. You know, elsewhere in the world, talk of automation causes some worker trepidation. Uh, a 2018 mm. OECD survey showed that most, if not all, workers in OECD countries feared that an increase in automation would increase job security. Um, do the Japanese mm. share these concerns? Is it similar there? So, so I think, you know, of course, I can't speak for the entire population, um, but, but I do think in the case of Japan, the automation could be a potential solution to the labor shortage issue that we have, and also the um, you know the source of growth um, to to improve our productivity. Um, but you're right. Um, I think um, the McKinsey Global Institute's analysis suggests that um, about 10 million workers in Japan, or about 18 percent of the workforce will have to go through the change in the type of occupation they are engaged in order to adapt to the automated future or new technologies. And then that's actually um, the highest among the developed countries in terms of the shift that's required. So, you know, while the unemployment rate remains very low in Japan, less than 3%, even the time of COVID, um, and then I think jobs, you know, having a job is not an issue, but the workforce in Japan will for sure have to go through some uh, learnings of new skills and an adaption to new types of occupations. Um, I think that's the big challenge for us. In, in recognition of that, might that be a subtle uh, stimulation for workers who otherwise felt that they had jobs for life, the idea that they mm. will need to retrain or their automation is creeping in in different areas, even in the back office, even in mom and pop operations. Does that motivate, in other words, some workers to say, okay, game up, let's, uh, let's, let's reinvent ourselves? Mm. It's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I think there are people who are excited about these opportunities and learn new things. So while, you know, there are certainly others who think that they are not necessarily um, up for the new types of challenge, right? Um, for example, in the um, SME space, um, I've actually been quite encouraged to see some, you know, um, some uh, like the, the uh, company heads, the CEOs, and then others who are um, very curious about what the technologies and then automation and AI could do to improve the productivity and then starting to adapt to those new solutions um, because they can't necessarily find employees or, you know, they, they may not have their 
family who are willing to succeed their businesses, right? And then I think those are very encouraging signs, whether it's in the manufacturing or you know, even agriculture. I think there are new generation of leaders who are starting to be much more technology and then data savvy. But at the same time, I've also seen um, you know, people in their 50s and then or even 60s um, you know, who feel like it's going to be difficult for them to learn new skills and get um, you know, to the next level of learning. Um, and then, you know, personally, I, I think thinking about how these, you know, people in their kind of 50s and 60s could reinvent themselves would be a big challenge because in Japan, of course, the life expectancy is in the 80s. And then now, you know, um, we're talking about people who are still active in their 70s. So, you know, 50s is still not, not late. It's just you still have quite a few years to... To, to keep active and then contributing to the society, right? Yeah, I like to say 50s is the new 20s, and it feels that way sometimes. <laughs> So, so I guess in some ways you're saying that the you know it, it's inevitable by virtue of these mm-hmm. demographics that uh, automation is going to have to be a consideration by Japanese-based organizations. Tell us a little bit about the level to which automation is already in place in Japan. Which industries mm-hmm. lead and which lag? Sure. So of course the manufacturing sector has been the kind of the, the front line of the automation, especially when it thinks you know when you think about the the factories and an operational processes, you know the robotics and um, a lot of the automated you know warehouses and you know those kinds of things is very much at the kind of the cutting edge uh, of what uh, the world uh, technology would allow us to do. Um, and then, of course, that's a big source of um, export in Japan, and then that, you know, um, continues to be um, strong. Um, at the same time, I think uh, there's a still further room, uh, even in manufacturing sector, to adapt the latest technologies, especially around more around the, the softwares, right? Not just the hardware of um, replacing the manual factory workers with the automated assembly lines, but more when it thinks about, you know, for example, the uh, using AI for predictive maintenance, or you know, thinking about how best to, to optimize the supply chain, etc. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think manufacturing is at the forefront, uh, although with like much more room to improve. I think the the challenging areas or the areas that are further behind are. You know things that have much more human interactions. Uh, so, for for example, if you think about healthcare, um, you know that's an area. Of course, um, you want to be seen by the doctors, and you want to be taken care of by the caregivers and the nurses. Um, but that's you know with the aging population, um, that will continue to to face a lot of labor shortages. Um, and then I think that's you know true that there will still be certain elements of a human interaction that's necessary. Um, but I actually think that the automation has the potential to improve productivity or take on some of the transactional administrative work uh, that the nurses or caregivers currently have to do uh, manually. 
Um, so there are certainly potential in those areas. Mm, like digital medical records or things of that, where it just cuts out the administrative right. costs. Oh, excellent. But at the same time, it's interesting you mentioned healthcare. I also recall seeing robotics uh, being used to mm-hmm. help elderly, getting them in and out of beds or taking them upstairs if they live at home. I mean, these are innovations coming out of Japan. Um, yes. So it, it's interesting in one regard, you say it's very traditional. Uh, and very reluctant to some degree. Yet, when I, you know, read about this or listen to others speak about Japan, uh, it feels to me that some of the leading edge ideas, innovations, robotics, uh, machine learning is coming out of Japan. It's a paradox, isn't it? That, uh, that, that Japan is that way and then it's not. What's your explanation for that? That's a really interesting observation. Um, I, I think, you know, um, the, the, the Japanese companies continue to be innovative, right? And then to find the business opportunities. Um, I think, you know, it will never replace completely the human touch and the human interactions, but I think people are experimenting. So, you know, the fact that, I mean, the, the examples that you mentioned, right, about the robot robots um, helping the, um, you know, the, the heavy lifting, for example, of the elderly or, you know, um, some of the work that's um, even uh, tasking for the caregivers. I think there are certainly rooms for that. I've seen, you know, also robots talking to elderly to help them um, continue to speak and, um, you know, prevent uh, the progression of Alzheimer's, for example. Right? So there are maybe more things than you would expect um, or you're comfortable today that actually can be done by the robots or the machines. Um, but, you know, as in, is, is the case for all operations and in everything, I, I think people need to get used to or comfortable one by one on the changes that's happening. And then maybe the world 10 years from now might be completely different from what, you know, we imagine the technology would allow um, at that point. Well, to that point, to what degree does the Japanese government encourage or get involved or invest in automation, uh, recognizing that there's a demographic issue and even a political issue here? Where, where do they come in or do they leave it primarily to the private sector? So I, I do think, I mean, you know, of course, I, I, I can't speak on behalf of the government, but I think the government is certainly um, recognizing the potential that these technology could, could play in kind of the, the economic growth as well as the, um, you know, the productivity improvement that I mentioned earlier. Um, and in 2019, um, the Japanese government issued this AI strategy, uh, which was, um, you know, um, based on the uh, group of experts who have really thought about what could, what this, um, you know, AI could do uh, to our economy. And then I think they focused on four things, right? Um, so in that strategy, they talked about the importance of developing talent, um, you know, who are familiar with AI and then digital technology. Um, you know, they talked about um, enhancing the competitiveness of industries by ab- adapting more AI technologies. Um, you know, they also talked about um, establishing technology systems to realize sustainable society and then also take leadership, um, Japan to take leadership in international research and standard, standard setting. So, you know, I, I think 
um, these are kind of um, at least the framework that allows uh, the private sector to really think about where they can invest and where they can feel comfortable. Of course, there are still some you know challenges and issues that we need to uh, resolve. It. And I think the government will have to think about in terms of regulations, etc. Um, but certainly, it seems like you know everybody is recognizing this is an inevitable future that we need to live with. Maya, let's take those one at a time. Across those four pillars, in your assessment, how well equipped is Japan to address those targets or those goals? Uh, let's starting with talent, AI talent. Where do they stack up compared to the U.S., China, or even Western Europe? Yeah, I, I think the talent continues to be a major, major gap uh, in Japan. Um, so a couple of years ago, I think the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry published a report that said, um, you know, we are short on AI talent by about 48,000 individuals. Uh, but it's still a very small number compared to, you know, the US, China, India, all of those countries are um, educating and developing uh, talent in this area. And then I think Japanese government um, said, you know, the aspiration is to um, generate about 250,000 AI talent per year. Um, but of course, that would have to come up, you know, from multiple sources, right? So um, I think we're now starting to um, get really serious about uh, curriculums and programs in even high school and in universities. Um, but, you know, the private sector companies can't really wait until those students become, uh, you know, come into the workforce. And I think the private sector companies are really thinking about how can they retrain their workforce uh, to be more savvy about understanding the opportunities, business opportunities through these tools. And, you know, they may not be the people who have studied um, you know, artificial uh, intelligence or coding in universities, but, you know, there's still room for those people to learn um, and to be able to use these technologies in business. It, it does raise another question, and, and in the beginning of our, of our discussion, you mentioned um, declining workforce, uh, declining productivity, but there's also this issue of a resistance to immigration or bringing in talent to fill some of these gaps. Again, that's been a, a uniquely Japanese position, I think, for many, many years. Is there any movement, particularly around AI? Uh, the United States uh, makes no uh, no mistake, they're, they're opening the doors, or at least until recently, uh, to Indians, Chinese, and others who are um, who are coming to the U.S., getting educated, wishing to stay uh, under this administration. It's making harder to, to remain if you have those types of talents. But the hope is that it'll swing back. That's the way the U.S. is filling the gap. What's Japan's view on that when it comes to talent in AI or machine learning? Mm, I, I don't I don't know enough about the current uh, government's policy to to be able to to answer that question. Um, I, I think you're right that um, you know it's been the historical um, um, position, um, and then we are starting to um, you know invite. Uh, technical workers uh, from outside of Japan, but I think that question around AI is still need to be to be seen. 
Okay. Let's go back to those four pillars. Uh, the second one was AI for industrialization. Um, it does sound, yeah. given its leading role in manufacturing, that's probably one, it's, one of its top areas where it's dem demonstrating a capability. What else might you say about that? Yeah, I, I think the um, in the manufacturing sector, obviously the um, the competitiveness is the driving force for private productivity improvement. So, I actually think uh, that will continue to evolve. I think the question is, you know, how are the other sectors, for example, um, you know, maybe the um, you know the consumer um, you know oriented areas like the the financial services or, you know, the um, uh, retail and services, like, you know, how are they following uh, some of the, uh, the big push uh, uh, on, on uh, industrialization or automation? Um, and then I think COVID certainly helped to some extent because, of course, you know, we are perhaps people are less comfortable going to see people in person or purchasing the things uh, in stores. And then I think there's been a big um, um, acceleration. Uh, I, I think the question is, as we become, you know, moving to this new normal, does that, is that here to stay or do we go back to the, you know, all the way of interacting with each other? Right. It does feel like in areas where Japan is required to compete globally, they will push the edge, the, 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 the curve on this, try, try to be as advanced in applying automation as possible in AI. Yet when it's domestic, particularly when it comes to serving their customers or giving them that feeling of, of uh, being uniquely served, um, it's, it's, less, it's, more, uh, it's less digital and it's more manual that simply seems to be customary, the expectation of the customers, if you will. Do you see a line being drawn to some degree in terms of the application based Based on domestic versus global, mm. I, I think that's right, and then I think you're right about the the service culture, right? I think many um, you know shops or businesses take real pride in having high quality customer service and support. Sometimes to the detriment of the productivity, right? And then I think it's very difficult for people to just kind of move away from it. Um, uh, although, you know, I do see some changes happening, perhaps, you know, um, in a slow way, um, like, you know, adoption of the cashless payments or, you know, some of the, um, you know, the tools and the solutions for businesses to improve their financial management or purchases, et cetera. And then so... I think they are, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a, a change management or people need to feel comfortable uh, in the uh, new ways of doing things. But I do think um, people are, you know, realizing some of the convenience and the benefits, right, that, um, you know, hopefully will move in the right direction. Do you believe because of Japan's unique situation uh, that we've just been discussing that it could serve as a bit of a showcase for other parts of the world that are earlier on in deciding whether or not they're going to 
automate or displace workers or uh, do things with AI that perhaps some people are concerned about? In other words, should people be looking to Japan to see how effective it, it is in order to make their own decisions? Or is Japan truly unique and therefore whatever happens in Japan stays in Japan? I think, I think that we can certainly offer some examples for other countries. Um, although I think, you know, there are some areas Japan is um, innovating and experimenting and uh, could serve as the, the role model or test case for other countries. Um, while, you know, there are certainly areas we are lagging behind and trying to learn from other countries as well. Right. So like the cashless payments, I think, is one example where, you know, we're still quite behind compared to some of the other countries and we're still very cash based economy. Um, but, you know, some of the things you talked about, like the healthcare and the robotics and what it could do could certainly be, um, you know, one of the areas that could be a, a, a great role model for um, other countries. Mm. Maya, do the Japanese share concerns with the rest of the world with respect to ethical AI? In other words, is there concern that in some sectors AI might be unleashed to the detriment of the Japanese worker or citizen? Yeah, I think it's, it's an important issue or we, or we, we all need to kind of continue to, to be mindful of. Um, you know, I think um, the... Um, I know there's been kind of expert committees and discussions around the regulations and things like that. Um, but, but I think, as I said, you know, um, we have to find the right balance, um, you know, between living with some of these um, technologies and the benefits um, while, you know, so thinking about uh, some of the downside and then making sure we take actions. Right. So, so some of these discussions around, you know, the, the transparent AI or making sure people understand what it is doing as opposed to just the whole complete black box. I think those are, you know, good um, progress and then a push um, to give people more comfort. Yeah, I mean, tr trade-offs, you're right. I mean, I think every executive around the world is thinking about what are my obligations to my employees versus my shareholders? Where do I make decisions about automation or application of AI? And where do I hold off until it's tested and, and, and tried? Um, it, it also, you know, it, it feels to me, and I'm wondering what you think about this, that um, sometimes the, 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 there's a an effort to try to... Um, clarify the fact that AI isn't working in competition with humans, but in collaboration with humans. But, mm -hmm. but it also makes me slightly suspicious, as if somehow they're trying to calm the nerves of, of people who might be concerned about this. Yet when you speak with true technologists or AI developers, they speak to heightened abilities. I mean, to be able to vastly displace people very quickly if choices are made. So again, it comes to not so much the technology te technology's limitations, but really about executives and corporations and organizations' uh, resistance to go too quickly into it in order to displace. What's your feeling and how does that play in Japan? Mm, I, I, I do like this notion about coexisting with the latest technologies to help um, what the human can do as opposed to competing uh, and then displacing 
interesting. And, and I think, I mean, it depends on the types of work um, and the complexity of those work, right? Because I think, um, again, you know, the, the McKinsey Global Institute analyzed different types of occupations and proportion of those tasks that can be automated. And then it's vastly variant from kind of a more of the uh, repetitive transactional work that can be highly automated to more of the knowledge workers who, of course, with the help of AI and then these technologies could make better decisions, but still at the end of the day, you still have to be involved in involved human beings. So, you know, I, I think this notion about how can we use the technology in a way that really helps um, humans to focus on the things that only humans can do, I think this is an important notion. And I think I agree with you that the, you know, it's the um, executives and then the leadership, um, you know, who can, um, find the right balance um, in in balance, you know, in balance between different pressures and, and demands that they would have to meet. When when you map those uh, professions most at risk from automation or displacement from AI, and then you look at the Japanese market, how does that map against the labor unions or the worker unions um, that are particularly strong? In other words. Do you see potential areas of resistance based on that kind of trend line? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, the uh, more, let's say, blue collar work um, and the things that are, um, you know, standardized and then transactional, I think they are more susceptible to the, the possibility of technologies um, doing significant portion of work, right? And then, so, um, of course, they tend to be more also stronger um, in a unionized environment. And then I think, again, that's a, it's, a, it's a conversation that the companies would have to continue with the unions about, you know, what these technologies could do in terms of improving the productivities and potentially also um, benefiting the workers um, at the same time addressing these labor shortages and, you know, also um, thinking about those individuals who are currently in the workforce. So, um, I, again, I think it's a, it's a difficult question, but I think, you know, you have to find the right balance um, any indication that um, organizations or governments holding back on deploying certain automation solutions because of the labor concerns or not yet? Um, I, I mean, sure, you know, every company that has to think about what they could do to invest in technologies versus the labor for, you know, continuing to operate the way they have been, I think have to go through this thinking. Right, because it does require significant investment in order to adopt technologies, and the benefit will come, you know, sometimes a few years later. Um, and then you also have the obligation to continue to employ these workers. So, you know, I, I think it's not a black and white answer where every company can adopt the technology overnight and then, you know, um, um, change the the demographics. Um, but but I think that's a uh, ongoing conversation, you know, where kind of companies are progressing at maybe gradual, um, you know, way. 
yeah, interesting times. And as you rightly pointed out, COVID-19 might have given a bump uh, to some of these decisions to, uh, to automate. Let's wait and see. And we'd like to circle back and uh, maybe talk to you in, in three or four months, find out what you're seeing in the market. Maya, in the meanwhile, thank you so much for taking time out and speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve. That was my conversation with Maya Hori, a partner with McKinsey & Company in the firm's Tokyo office. At the risk of conjuring up images of robot armies deployed to displace human workers, recent studies suggest that efforts to downplay that risk might be overstated. In other words, companies emerging from the COVID crisis may have no choice. Whether in the interest of increased productivity or in an effort to reduce the risk of contagion, Robots and all forms of AI-driven automation are looking like viable investment options. Workers in some sectors more than others may prove expendable. Just this week, the International Federation of Robotics announced, and I quote, that 2.7 million robots work in factories around the globe, marking it as the highest level in history. Asia, not surprisingly, led by China, Japan, and Korea, accounted for more than 218,000 robot installations in 2019, representing nearly 68% of the world's total. In Japan and Korea, AI-enabled robots are a necessary evil to shore up the shortfall in available manpower. In China, the situation is quite different. There is no shortage of human labor. It's instead a matter of manufacturing leadership. China installed more industrial robots last year than all other countries combined. The trend in AI-driven automation is clear and apparent. The real question is, what does this mean for the human workforce? Researchers at MIT predict that robot deployment will quadruple in the next five years. More importantly, they say, and again I quote, our evidence shows that robots increase productivity. They are very important for continued growth, but at the same time, they destroy jobs and they reduce labor demand. Those effects of robots also need to be taken into account. Right, those effects. Now, who is it exactly who's taking this into account? Governments? Companies? Labor unions? There's more. Some of you might have heard a lot about how robots won't replace humans but will instead work with them, as if some magical human-slash-robot melding is in the making. Well, according to the good people at the International Federation of Robotics, demand for so-called collaborative robots is virtually insignificant compared to demand for traditional robots. As in, the kind that don't require any form of human participation. Thank you very much. I suspect that much of this is just evolutionary. It makes sense that labor-intensive work is being subsumed by robots leaving humans to dwell on the more creative requirements of our modern economy. But what started with industrial robots is now leaking into other sectors. Make way for the professional cleaning robots, the inspection and maintenance robots, the medical robots, and, wait for it, the powered human eco-skeleton and military-grade robots. If you've seen the film The Matrix Revolutions, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If the current message to the global workforce is, beware blue-collar workers, robots are coming for your jobs, then the next phase points to back-office roles, where any repeatable or templatized process ranging from accounting to legal work can and will be done by AI applications. Companies know it and are preparing in boardrooms around the world to make qualified decisions on which jobs go and which ones stay. Thinking about law school, financial accounting, or a career in communications? Don't. 
There's a smarter, cheaper, and tireless alternative waiting in the wings, and it goes by the name of artificial intelligence. That brings us to the close of this week's episode. Are you thinking this may be the time to have a chat with a boss or refresh your CV? Maybe. But know this. Like all things related to technology, the hype always precedes the reality. We are in a period of transition from human to machine labor, but there's still time. Don't fold your tent and give up on the work life just yet. The role for us humans is still being decided. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.